Galatians chapters 3 and 4 on sin and judgment. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. We'll read 1 to 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In the first two chapters, the apostle has established the fact of his true apostleship and his true apostleship in the face of opposition, even from the leadership of those who were ministering among the churches of Galatia. Now he is turning his attention to the true relationship between faith and works. In chapters 3 and 4, the true relationship between faith and works. Faith is based on a promise, the promise of faith or salvation in Jesus Christ or the promise of justification by faith in Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection on the other hand works is works of the law works of the law of Moses and that method says if i do these works in addition to Christ or if i do these works excluding Christ excluding faith in Christ then God accepts me because the law, being good, if I do the good things of the law, then I will earn, I will merit, it will be my wage to receive salvation, eternal life, justification. These are the two alternatives, the only two alternatives. One is right, the other is wrong. One is true, the other is false. However, both within the church and outside the church, there are so many people, many people who want to believe that salvation, their salvation is based on their works, how good they are, rather than faith in Jesus Christ. This is the fundamental sin. This is the fundamental reason why if they hear the gospel, they are punished and thrown into the lake of fire because they don't believe in the true gospel by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul in these two chapters, even actually from the beginning, chapter 1, he has been speaking so sternly. He's been speaking so categorically. He has been speaking with such conviction and confidence because he wants the Galatians to understand the truth and believe in the truth. Whereas they have false brethren, false teachers, infiltrating their midst, saying that salvation is by faith in Christ plus circumcision, plus everything else. This is what they are teaching. However, the apostle counteracts that. He actually, in many ways, 
he shows in chapters 3 and 4 that this is quite heretical and unsuitable for anyone claiming to have faith, true faith, and the faith of Abraham even. It's contrary to all of that. We see here in verse 1 how strongly he criticizes the Galatians. He calls them foolish. You foolish Galatians. We must remember that this is the apostle that also wished, desired, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he desires for them to have, more grace and more peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. However, when they are in sin, when they are sinning, he doesn't flatter them, he doesn't commend them, he confronts them by calling them foolish. Either we are foolish or wise. He calls them foolish. He also says that somebody bewitched them. Bewitched. To bewitch means to be under the spell of somebody. To be as though there was some witch or some witch doctor, a witch or a warlock, that pronounced a spell and put the people in a daze, put them in a delusion, put them in another world, seeing visions and hearing, uh, seeing uh, visions and having dreams and looking at the world as though it is one way when it's actually another way, akin to insanity. This is what has happened to the Galatians. They have been fooled and they have been bewitched by false teachers. Verse 1 also asks a question, and actually we have several questions throughout this chapter, but especially here in verses 1 to 5, questions. Why does he ask them questions? He asks them questions because rhetorically speaking, when verbally or in literature, when writing, when one asks another a question, it causes the recipient to think about it and to practice judgment, to practice discernment, to figure out what is the answer to that question and make sure he has the right answer to the question. This is what he does in verse 1. He says, Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? We preach Jesus Christ crucified, but somebody put you under a spell. Somebody bewitched you. Who did that? Figure it out. Somebody's telling the truth and somebody's not telling the truth. Who did that to you? Verse 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says this is the only thing, meaning if you could just answer one question, I'm bombarding you now with many questions because you deserve to be jolted into reality. But if you were to answer only one, answer this question. Verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did that happen? Did the Holy Spirit come upon you because of the works of the law? And they'll have to say, no, it did not happen that way. It happened by hearing with faith like it did in Acts chapter 10 to the household of Cornelius. He, they were listening to the gospel, and then while they were listening and believing in the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell upon them by hearing with faith. Verse 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? How foolish can one be? He called them that in verse 1, but he's saying, are you so foolish? There are degrees of foolishness, and this is really bad when one knows that he began by the Spirit, but now are being perfected by the flesh. Why would God endow us, gift us with the Holy Spirit, and then say, okay, now your salvation is by works? He wouldn't do that. Why would he do that? What's the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit? For God 
to make his spirit dwell in us and cause us to walk in his statutes, not to suspend the work of the spirit and be perfected by the flesh. Now, causing the spirit to dwell in us and causing us to walk in his statutes, Ezekiel 36, 26. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 teaches that. Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Why did they suffer? For what purpose did they suffer? Suffer persecution. Why did they experience all that suffering if their persecutors believe the same as they do? If their persecutors believe in salvation by works of the law, then why did you suffer at all? That would mean you suffered in vain. In vain. It was useless for you to be punished or persecuted, to suffer, to be afflicted with beatings or imprisonments or loss of job or whatever it might have been. It was in vain. You didn't have to experience all that. Just go along with them. Or not not go along with them. Verse 5. Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. We might say that verse 5 encapsulates the previous questions in many ways. Verse 5, Does God, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? They all know the trigger... The cause, the, the impetus for them receiving the Spirit and performing the miracles had to do with hearing the Word and believing in that Word. Hearing the Word and believing in that Word. Not anything else. Not their own human effort. Not at all. Verses 6 to 9 present the example of Abraham. And he'll return to the example of Abraham. Why so? Because Abraham is the model. Abraham is the one who is known as the father of the faith. He is presented here in Galatians 3. He is in Romans chapter 4. He is in James chapter 2. James 2, 14 to 26. And all of Romans chapter 4 takes up the example of Abraham. So if anybody is going to make a claim to Abraham, and many do, Jews, Christians, Muslims, they all make a claim to Abraham. Well, what did he believe? Did Abraham believe like the Galatian heretics, or did Abraham believe like the Apostle Paul? That's the question. So he presents the example of Abraham, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Belief or faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's not works of the law. It could not be works of the law because the law of Moses was delivered about 500 years after the time of Abraham. There's no way it was works of the law. If it's not works of the law then Abraham had to have faith reckoned to him as righteousness. But faith in whom? Faith in what? That he will explain later. Verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. Be sure, he says. Have confidence. You ought to have certainty on this matter. You should not have uncertainty You should not waver and totter and wobble on this issue. You must understand those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. One must have faith. And this faith is faith in the death of Jesus Christ. Why did he die? He died to take away my curse. This is what he will explain. We must have this kind of faith and have surety, have certainty on this matter. It's faith in Christ, 
not works of the law. And we might be wondering, well, then why the law? Well, he's going to answer that later in this chapter. What is the purpose? What is the role of the law? He'll answer that in the last half of the chapter. Verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. The scripture being a prophet or being a predictor, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. If Abraham is saved by faith, and he is the father of the Hebrew nation, and the Gentiles are saved by faith, and they will become like Abraham, then why is it any different? Why are the heretics persuading you that it's a different way, a different gospel. And this gospel was proclaimed to Abraham beforehand, it says, beforehand to Abraham. Before any of this occurred, before the first coming of Christ, before the gospel was preached widely, before it was broadcast to the nations, this was said to Abraham beforehand. All the nations shall be blessed in you. The blessing of Abraham would be the same for the nations of the world, the Gentiles of the world. But he says also gospel. This is an important word. What does gospel mean here? Does the apostle in Galatians 3.8 have a different meaning for this word gospel in chapter 3 than he did in chapter 1? or anywhere else that he writes? Or does the apostle have the same meaning in Galatians 3, 8, as well as in Galatians 1, 6 to 10, Galatians 1, 6 to 10, and in Galatians 2, 11 to 21, and throughout the letter, and throughout all of his letters? Does he have the same meaning or a different meaning? It's obvious, unless one has been brainwashed by false teaching, that he has the same meaning. He's not going to use different meanings for the word gospel because he already said in chapter 1, 6 to 10, that we are under a curse if we preach a different gospel other than the one he had originally preached to the Galatians. We would be under a curse. That means that he cannot be changing his definition or meaning or sense of the word gospel. He has the same sense, the same meaning. One gospel that Abraham believed, one gospel that Jesus Christ preached, and one gospel the Apostle Paul preached, and one gospel that the Galatians first heard from the apostles. And now the heretics are undermining it. They are very sneaky in changing it subtly to, change, uh, to destroy their faith in the true gospel. And yet that cannot happen. One might say, well, he didn't say anything about the death of Christ. Certainly he did. He said it in 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And he's going to say it in 3.13. He's going to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Of course, included and central to belief in Christ, according to the gospel that the Apostle Paul is preaching, it includes and has as its central facet the cross, the death of Christ. Why did he come into the world? Why did he die on the cross? That is answered by the prophets, the holy prophets and the holy apostles in the Old Testament and the New Testament to be one and the same thing. He died as our substitute. He died to receive our curse, our penalty. That is why he's so incensed here. That's why he is so uptight and irritated that the Galatians would give any quarter, any room 
to false doctrine because it will jeopardize their souls. So he says, we're not going to tolerate it. We're not going to yield in subjection to this for even an hour, he said in chapter 2, verse 5. We're not going to yield to any false doctrine at all. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6, 14. Verse 9, 3, 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. We might note, and we will note it until the end, the numerous times that he uses the expression faith, have faith, believe, belief. These are synonymous. They are interchangeable terms. And he says here, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Unmistakably, he is emphasizing faith as opposed to works. It's one way or the other. It's not a combination. It's not mostly faith and partially works. It's not mostly works and partially faith. It's not 50-50 or 51-49 or 49-51. There is no combination. It's all faith in Christ, in his death for our sins. It's all that. And in order to prove it, verses 10 to 12. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. He says in verse 10, quoting Deuteronomy 27 and 26, that whoever is dependent upon the works of the law, he is under a curse. And Moses said that when he delivered the law. Moses is the one who received the oracles of God to write the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 27, 26, where the apostle is quoting, Moses told them that. He made it very clear to the people of Israel before he died that you are all under a curse because you cannot do everything that the law requires of you. So don't depend on your works. Instead, as he preached the gospel in Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14, and Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22, he preached of the prophet like me who was to come, and you shall listen to him. And he preached in Deuteronomy 30, that the word, the word of faith, the word of the gospel is near you. So believe in it. This is what Moses preached and taught the people. There is no way you can and ought to depend on the works of the law. Before I die, I put you all under a curse by the word of the Lord. That's what the loving Moses did. Yes, the book of Deuteronomy was his last book written after the 40 years of wilderness wandering, and right before he died. Deuteronomy. If that's not clear enough, the prophet Habakkuk makes it more clear in verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. It's clear. It's unmistakable. Why are you confused? That's why he says it's evident. And why is it evident? For the righteous man shall live by faith. And who said this? Habakkuk did in Habakkuk 2.4. The prophet Habakkuk, the prophet of the Lord, said, the righteous man shall live by faith. Habakkuk was a prophet who lived in 600 B.C. He lived about eight to 900 years after Moses. So now we have... Abraham before Moses, hundreds of years before Moses, then Moses, and then the prophet Habakkuk hundreds of years after Moses, both Abraham and Habakkuk, they are preaching and believing in faith, faith in Christ to be reckoned righteous. Both Abraham and Habakkuk. And the one that's telling us about Abraham is Moses himself. 
which is further proof that Moses was teaching salvation by faith, not salvation by works. How could it be that after the law of Moses was delivered and in the hands of the nation, that God would now say, you're saved by works? And if he did teach that, why is Habakkuk now saying, hundreds of years after Moses, the righteous man shall live by faith? Habakkuk would not presume to contradict Moses. He would only, being a true prophet, confirm Moses or repeat Moses or re-explain Moses, as he does in many places. But he's not contradicting Moses. He is supporting the true doctrine of Moses. This is further explained in verse 12. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. The law in its very nature is not of faith. And by this he means the requirements of the law. The requirements of the law. What the law says we are bound to do to love God, to love our neighbor, the Ten Commandments, and all the other commandments derived from the above commandments, all of them we are supposed to do. These are the requirements. Now, if that's the way the law is presented, if that's the way the law is preached, then its preaching works that way, not faith. Its preaching works, not faith. Not that within the law, faith isn't taught anywhere. We just said, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's taught there. And in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22, the prophet, you shall listen to him, believe in him. And that prophet, according to the book of Acts, chapter 3, 21 to 26, that prophet is Jesus of Nazareth. Acts 3, 21 to 26. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. So Moses said, believe in Jesus of Nazareth. The same in Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14. Believe in Jesus, the prophet to come. And did Moses anticipate and preach to the people the name Jesus? Yes. See Numbers 13, 16. Numbers 13, 16, where Moses changed the name of Hosea, the son of Nun, to Joshua. And Joshua's name is the same name as Jesus from the Hebrew language and in the Greek language. We make a distinction in English to avoid confusion, but not all languages make that distinction, such as Spanish. Spanish does not make that distinction. They say um, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus everywhere. And they even name their sons Jesus in Spanish. But in English, we make that distinction, and in a way that clarifies, we're talking about Joshua, the son of Nun, or Jesus of Nazareth. However, on the other hand, it, it conceals the fact that, that they are the same name. And that's what Moses gave to Hosea. He changed the name to Joshua in the book of Numbers, thirteen sixteen. Now, we say this, we preach this, because many people believe the Old Testament teaches works and law and the wrath of God and God's hatred and God's punishment, but the New Testament teaches faith, grace, love, mercy, no law, no works, and therefore God just receives us, accepts us the way we are. And if we believe Jesus died for us, good, we'll go to heaven. Otherwise, Jesus died for everybody. So everybody in some way or another will make it to heaven. And meantime, don't be so rigid. Don't be so strict. Don't be so insistent on what the Bible teaches because Jesus loves us all and we're all saved. If you believe good, your life will be better now, but you're going to heaven, and so don't worry about your sins. No need to repent of sins, especially the worship of God.
You don't have to gather to worship God. We worship God as we please. You don't have to meet with other people to worship God, they say, because God is everywhere. Yes, using biblical words with an unbiblical meaning and common words with an uncommon meaning. And therefore, they are under a curse. However, Christ came to release us from that curse, to deliver us from that curse. Verse 13, 313. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 313 of Galatians quotes Deuteronomy 21.23. Deuteronomy 21.23 is quoted here that whoever is hanged on a tree is under a curse. The deserving criminal who's worthy of death was hanged on a tree. And that showed that he received on display for the people who see it, who are walking by or spectators of his hanging, that that is his punishment for the crimes he committed. So that criminal was under a curse or under a penalty and deserved to die. And Christ received such penalty. However, not for his sins, not for his crimes, but for ours if we believe in him. He made him who knew no sin to be the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2. 22, who was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. He was spotless, unblemished. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. But he received a curse. And for what purpose? Not because he was a sinner or a criminal, but to receive our curse on him If we believe in him, then we will not be condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. Verse 14. 14 says, In order that in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He died for a reason. And what was his reason? In order that in him, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that blessing, which was already mentioned in 3 verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer, that same blessing Abraham received, we will receive by faith. And not only that, but the promise of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit dwelling in us, the the pledge of the Spirit, the seal of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit within us is what Abraham received as a blessing and Gentiles also receive as a blessing. The relationship now between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Many are perplexed about the reason for the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, especially if the Abrahamic covenant was sufficient, why the Mosaic covenant? Why the Mosaic one? That is the key question that he, the apostle, is going to answer because everyone must grapple with this question. And when one does not grapple, try to figure out this question, he will distort the Old Testament, and he will distort the New Testament. He will distort the purpose of the Old Testament, the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant, the purpose of the law of Moses. He will inevitably distort it if he does not understand the relationship. The Galatian heretics did not understand that relationship. They misjudged. They read Moses, but they did not understand Moses. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. 
For if you believe Moses, you would believe in me. For he wrote of me. From John 5, 39 to 47. John 5, 39 to 47. The last part of that. 46 and 47. Yes, Moses preached Christ, but the men refused to believe in Christ. The Christ that Moses preached. Yes, just as in their day, in Moses' day, and in our day, everyone will believe in Christ if he will promise us peace, progeny, and a pot belly. Everyone will believe in Christ. But if he's not promising those ad infinitum, if he's not promising those with a guarantee, then men want nothing to do with him. They want nothing to do with the cross of Christ and then for themselves to experience the same sufferings, the same kind of sufferings. But now he explains. He explains the true understanding and relationship, especially in verses 15 to 25. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ." that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Verse 15, man's covenant. He's going to use a human illustration. The Bible is full of them, but he's announcing it so he's very explicit in what he's saying so that we don't misunderstand him. He says, take into consideration a man's covenant. We have deeds and covenants in relation to properties, do we not, in other matters? And that's what he's talking about here. A man's covenant or a man's agreement, a man's contract. When it has been ratified, once it has been signed, once everyone agrees to it and signs and dates it, puts stamps of approval on it, whatever they must do, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it, if they're being honest. No one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. If we have two parties, human parties, one man and another, or one business and another, one, one individual and another, making a covenant, an agreement, they agree to the conditions, they put it in writing, they sign it, then... Neither of the two parties is at liberty to change what they agreed upon. They cannot change what they signed in the document. 
unless, of course, they go through the right process and negotiations. They cannot change it arbitrarily. It's fixed, correct? That's the way man's covenant works. Well, how about God? Wouldn't God's covenant be all the more more fixed since God is stable, God is unchanging, he is the Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Israel. Malachi 3.6 and Hebrews 13.8. If that's the case with God, that he is unchangeable and swearing an oath so that by his word and his oath, by two unchangeable things, by which it is impossible for God to lie. That's Hebrews 6, 13 to 18. If this is the way men are, isn't God all the more that way, since he is stable and reliable? So, whatever God said to Abraham is fixed. It's absolute. And what did he say? Verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. We have to note the preposition. We are not accustomed to noticing nouns, adjectives, prepositions, verbs, and so forth. We're not accustomed to that, but we must. Look at verse 16. It says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. To, to. To Abraham. When were they spoken to Abraham? On the earth. At some point at his conversion, right? On the earth. Not when he was an infant and he did not pre-exist. So at some point on the earth in time and space. The promises were spoken to Abraham. But it also says to his seed. To his seed, the promises were spoken to his seed. It doesn't say, and in reference to the seed. It says, to his seed. When then did God promise to the seed of Abraham? It must have been before the foundation of the world, which is known by theologians as the covenant of redemption. Before the foundation of the world. This would be Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, Acts 4, 26. This is before the foundation of the world, that the Father and the Son had one mind to do this and to announce it to Abraham. Then he says, he does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, singular seed, that is Christ. And this, we might say, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, and elsewhere, Genesis twenty-two eighteen. this is where the seed, the singular seed, is mentioned. Singular seed. Okay. If that's the case, verse 17. What I am saying is this. The law, the law of Moses, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The law of Moses, which came to the sons of Israel 430 years later, that law does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. There is no way the law of Moses hundreds of years later nullifies the promise of God to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. We might still wonder, what's the purpose of the law of Moses? He'll answer that. Meantime, verse 18, for 
If the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Here again, verse 18. If it's by law, then it's not by promise. If it's by promise, it's not by law. But God did indeed grant it to Abraham by means of a promise. So if that is fixed, if that is certain, and it is, that it was granted to Abraham by means of a promise, then the law is not a factor in this. It's not a factor as it's faith and law or faith and works. Verse 19. Here is the natural question. Why the law then? Why the law then? He asks what everybody wants to know. He understands everybody wants to know. Why the law? What is the relationship? What is the purpose of the law of Moses delivered hundreds of years after the promise to Abraham? Verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. There we have it. It was added because of transgressions. Means what? It says because of transgressions. That is, the law of Moses was delivered to the nation of Israel to heighten their understanding of their transgressions compared to the holiness of God. It was... a uh, greater example, a more numerous example, a prolific example of the many ways that the people were perverse and corrupt in their sins and that they could not live up to any of the law. They had to come to that realization that they were worthless and weak, unable to save themselves based on the works of the law or based on their own innate goodness because they did not have innate goodness, natural goodness. They had to come to grips with their transgressions and the law was an aid to that. That's why it was delivered. That's why it was given to them. Then the validity of the law, the validity of the law, having been ordained through angels. Ordain, having been ordained. Who's doing the ordaining, the appointing, the delivery? God is. God is orchestrating this. Having been ordained, he means by God, and he uses the passive voice of the verb, having been ordained, to imply God. It's also called a divine passive or a theological passive form of the verb, having been ordained. So God's ordaining, and he does it through angels. And in fact, he did it through myriads of angels. Deuteronomy 33.2 says, there were innumerable angels on the mountain of Sinai. Many, many. By the agency of a mediator, God used the agency of a mediator, the mediator being Moses, a holy man. And finally, in the history of Israel, the Jews, most of them, universally most of them, have no doubt that Moses was a man of God, prophet of God. Yes, there are some liberals and atheistic so-called atheistic Jews who don't believe in any of this, but the vast majority of them throughout history have no doubt that God spoke to Moses. And he wrote the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy called the Law of Moses. They know about that mediator, but this is what they didn't. Until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Cross-reference, verse 16. To his seed, singular seed. Verse 19. 
until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. That seed is Christ. He'll expand on that in verses 22 and following. Verse 20. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. That means that the mediator has to be the one who is between the two parties. He has to mediate or help bridge the gap between two parties. 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Now this he has to say because some fault finders will say, well, Paul, in verse 19, you didn't really answer the question. Yes, he did. He answered it. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. That should have been enough. Yet, fault finders will say, no, no, you still haven't directly said that the law is or is not contrary to the promises of God. Okay, well, he addresses it. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. It's not contrary. It's a supplement. It's an aid. It's a helper. Because the promises will be believed only if the law convicts you of your sin. Which is his next point. Verse 21. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. That is what he argued in verses 10 to 12, or 10 to 14. He's saying, if it were that way, then you would have righteousness. It would be based on law or works, but it's not. So what? 22. But the scripture has shut up all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what is the purpose of the scripture? The purpose of the scripture, the law, the law of Moses, is to shut up all under sin. And by shut up, he says it in verse 23, being shut up to the faith, and in verse 23, we were kept in custody under the law. When he says shut up, he means you are confined or bound, you have handcuffs on you, and you are in shackles in a prison, and there's nowhere for you to go. You are a criminal and the law convicted you and put you under custody or in custody. We use that terminology. Criminals are in custody. And that's the way we are before God. We are shut up in a prison cell and we are in custody under the penalty of the law. We are under the penalty of the law. The law reveals the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and tells us we are guilty, we are criminals, we deserve the death penalty. But what is the escape? uh, 22 to 29 explains. How do we escape the death penalty for being a criminal against God. How do we escape? 22. It says that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So faith for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 23. But before faith came, and he means not before faith came in the world, but he means before faith came in the individual. Before faith came in each of us, we who now believe, he says, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. So in the sequence of our salvation, first we must be in custody under the penalty of the law, shut up first in the prison, that must be first, and then faith is revealed. Faith which was later to be revealed in us, in our personal conversions. This is what he means by it. He's not speaking of it chronologically in history that in the Old Testament nobody had faith. That's ridiculous because in this whole chapter, almost, 
He's been saying Abraham had faith. And everybody who understood it, like Moses understood it, they also had faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't mean it chronologically, historically. He means it personally, within each individual's experience. He's first dead in trespasses and sins. Then he is made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the sequence he's speaking of here. Then 24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. The law is also a teacher, an instructor, a tutor, to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. The law teaches us about the holiness of God. It teaches us about the sinfulness of man. It also teaches us about faith in Jesus Christ, a tutor to lead us to Christ. Many examples of this. Genesis 3.15, Genesis 22.18, Genesis 49.10-12, Deuteronomy 18.15-22. We've spoken of some of these. Numbers 24.17, the star that will rise from Jacob. Numbers 24, 17. There are many like that that point to salvation in Christ. 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That means not that the law doesn't instruct us, but the law's penalty does not apply to us. In that way, we are no longer under a tutor. Why? 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We become sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Not faith and works, not works and faith, not mostly works or partially works, and some faith. No. It's faith in Christ Jesus. This is the way it occurs. 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. If we are baptized into Christ, Christ clothes us. If he clothes us, we don't need another garment. We don't need the garments of our filthy works. Who does this include? 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He uses several common examples. Jew-Greek or Jew-Gentile, slave and free man, male-female. These distinctions have no bearing on whether one is able to attain justification or salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Any human distinctions, any natural distinctions, and these are natural distinctions caused by God. Notice, Jew-Greek, God caused one to be a Jew or a Greek. God caused one to be a slave or a free man, born a slave or born a free man. And God caused us to be either male or female, right? God caused. So even what God caused doesn't mean God has restricted salvation to Jews only or Gentiles only. It doesn't mean salvation is for slaves only or for free men only or for males only or for females only. It's for all who have faith in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If we have faith in Christ Jesus, we are the descendants of Abraham the offspring of Abraham, the seeds of Abraham, and we are heirs of the kingdom of God, just as Abraham was, by promise or through promise. The promise is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved from your sins. These distinctions are woefully misunderstood, not understood. And so people do not understand, generally speaking, even in church, 
the difference or the distinction that we have just discovered or just studied in Galatians chapter 3. But we have to understand the relationship between sin and judgment and what the true gospel is in the pages of Scripture. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.